Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. Good morning, warriors. Time to start your day. Keep your head up, marching on. Don't another stand. I'm your host, Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a wisdom sharing platform for all people impacted by an eating disorder. Recovery Warriors provides resources and support to heal your relationship to food, body, mind, and soul. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it is worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, we have an inspiring conversation with Isabel Fox and Duke, the founder of Stop Fighting Food and the Center for Weight Neutral Coaching. Isabel is an expert in helping people peel off old diet brain thinking patterns so their life can stop revolving around food. She has mentored and coached names like Ricky Lake and is an authority on diet mentality, weight neutrality, and health at every size. I love listening to Isabel's passion and clear sense of purpose and helping others stop fighting with food and their body, and I hope you do too. Welcome to the show, Isabel. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well. I um, just want to start off by saying I absolutely love your writing style. It's Thank like, you. Yeah, I know you... Um, you really weave this like humor and hilarity into a really charged emotional experience. You know, the idea of emotional eating and just the craziness that goes on around food. And I just think it's like so funny just reading what you like, right? Because it's like, oh my God, I get totally identify. Like, thank you. Thank you. I tried to. You know, it's <laughs> funny. I was talking to um, like Christy Harrison recently, who I don't know if you know Christy Harrison. Mm-hmm. She's a fellow podcaster. Um, she recently gave me this very, you know, this wonderful compliment on another podcast that she was on. And she basically said, you know, I loved having Isabel on my show because Isabel bring sort of brought like levity and lightness and sort of lightened up the whole conversation that prior to had been very clinical. That was the gist. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but I, I do appreciate that compliment so much because we need to be having human conversations about this. And I think sometimes the language that people use around this topic, it doesn't really connect with people's real experience. Like it doesn't really connect with like being in the trenches and being like, Oh my God, like what just happened? Like I feel totally nuts in X, Y, Z way. Or I'm like really, really, really struggling. Like I can't fit into my pants. I, you know, I just ate like X, Y, Z and I'm freaking out about it. You know, a lot of times we kind of miss those, those sort of real moments get washed away in the language. And so, you know, I think that the, it's sort of important to always bring it back, you know, when talking about these topics, to bring it back to people's like real daily life experiences with these issues. So I appreciate that. that. Yeah. How has humor helped you like in, in your personal experience of going through yo-yo dieting and and binging and for the most part in my life I've had very little humor about it up until I started to kind of see until I was able to really come into start to come into recovery and start to kind of see 
for lack of a better word, the ridiculousness of it all, you know, um, and, and kind of laugh at myself about it. You know, I took food and my body incredibly seriously, too se- way too seriously for, for so long. Um, and I think that it was only kind of in retrospect, looking back as my recovery started to evolve, I would have these moments where I'd be like, wow, Isabel, like chill out. Like it's just a cupcake or whatever. You know, I'd sort of start to have these moments where I could kind of see it as almost funny um, that this, that, that my life revolved around not eating X, Y, Z. Right. And so, but in the throes of it and the thick of it, it was anything but funny. I mean, it was incredibly painful and I took it very seriously. Um, again, probably too seriously um, in, some, in some ways. Um, again, I think other people struggle with not taking it seriously enough. That's a whole other conversation for another time. But yeah, so, you know, I think that, you know, kind of finding humor w- was certainly helpful in my being able to let go of shame in particular around specific behaviors that I was struggling to accept. And, you know, as somebody who really identified as a binge eater for a long time, and again, I firmly believe that binge eating is the flip side of the coin of restrictive eating. And I do not know a simple binge. Like, I think that those two things are two sides of the same coin. Um, and I, and I don't mean to separate them by any stretch, but certainly at the time when I was struggling, I really, I didn't recognize my restriction as the problem. I was definitely a person who really thought the binging was the problem. And if I could just get my food right, everything would be fine. Right. Like if I could restrict correctly, which, you know, even if that mean, I remember like after I was in rehab for disordered eating, I still kind of had that mentality. Like, well, if I can stick to my meal plan correctly, or if I can stick to this way that recovery should look correctly, like it was all still like kind of a restrictive mentality that I had the whole whole thing. Cause I, I didn't recognize how much diet mentality that I was actually even applying to my attempts at recovery in many ways. Point that I'm making here is I, for most of my life, really thought that my problem was that I couldn't stick to whatever it was, whether it was the diet, which originally was just traditional dieting, traditional just weight suppression tactics, or I couldn't stick at some point it switched to, oh my God, I can't stick to the correct recovery plan. You know, like I can't stick to my meal plan. I can't stick to, you know, eating when I'm hungry and stopping when I'm full or whatever the thing was that I thought was supposed to fix me and make me a quote normal eater. So I will say humor was really helpful in kind of making me relax when I would make quote unquote mistakes with food, which now I don't even view as mistakes. Like now I just view them as like, that's just what you ate that day. It like, it's just what it is. Um, but you know, at the time it would be like, Oh, you know, I you know ate a bunch of this or I got really full or my language at the time was I binged. Although again, I'm not even sure I like that language because I think people throw that away word around in a way that is restrictive and shamey as opposed to understanding that it's just a natural thing. If you restrict, you might eat a bunch later. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, kind of being able to look at this whole situation, which again, at the time when I was dealing with it, I took very seriously and really thought was the end of the world. If I, you know, ate something that was quote wrong to be able to look at it and really just be like, you know, no big deal, girl. Like it's okay. It's just food. Again, <laughs> it's, it was amazing that I even was able to get to the place where I could even conv- like talk to myself in that way and just be like, 
it's just food, right? Because that is the exact sentence that for so long people would say that to me and I would just lose my mind. What are you talking about? It's just food. Like it, I can, you don't understand me. You don't understand my pain. Little did I realize that if taking actively and intentionally trying to take on the attitude of like, Hey man, it's okay. Is really what sort of one of the many things that sort of helped me get to the other side. And again, there were body image things that were very important in getting there. There were things of, you know, various different attitudes around food that I had to take to kind of make this sort of attitude shift a reality. But um, I guess humor was one of them. I'd actually never been asked that question. It's a good one. A lot of the best comedy is really taking these dark issues and bringing light to them. And right, right. But it sort of takes, again, I think that, I think probably the biggest thing that it does, and I'll speak for myself certainly with food and body. I mean, I think the biggest thing that humor does is it just takes a little bit of the shame out of it. And I think you know, with disordered eating in particular, disordered eating is really a quote illness of shame um, in many ways, right? I mean, this is such a fundamental emotion that sort of drives this whole behavioral pattern, you know, I mean, by definition, right, body shame is sort of at the root of most disordered eating to some extent, or the desire to control our body is for the purpose of trying to control, for instance, how other people feel about us or fears around how other people are going to feel about us or not wanting to be seen or issues of vulnerability. I mean, we could go into the complexities of this. It's not as simple as I'm probably describing it right now, but I think shame is a core emotion that sort of is driving this stuff. So anything that you can kind of bring to the table to help people alleviate shame around food and body related topics, I think is incredibly useful and helpful. Again, if done smartly, you know, in in a, in a way that is, you know, uh, educated and doesn't contribute certainly to body shame or fat, fat phobia. And yeah, for me, that was absolutely uh, true. You know, like being able to kind of look at my food and just be like, oh my gosh, you know, like kind of like see the humor in what my life had become really helped me let go of it and sort of let go and not feel like, oh my God, there's something deeply wrong with me. I am so screwed up. There's, I am there. Like there comes a point and it kind of brings up this other topic, which is, I think a lot of times this sort of um, eating disorder diagnosis, as helpful as it can be in helping us do things like get treatment and take our recovery seriously, it can also sometimes be sort of a shameful thing in of itself. Like, oh my God, I'm so screwed up, right? There's something so wrong. I'm so, it can contribute to the feelings of failure in a lot of ways. And some of us, I certainly bought totally. into that. Like I really bought into after I had my sort of ED diagnosis, you know, there was again, helpful things that came out of that, of course, specifically lines of treatment. But one thing that I really struggled to let go of, and I've written about this before is I really, in some ways, it kind of propelled the problem forward in the sense that I really identified with being screwed up, fundamentally screwed up around mm-hmm. food. Yeah. Um, and that was not always useful. And again, this is another complicated topic that I've written about, but yeah, you can, you can see how that, that would be the case for some people. Like when I identified as I have binge eating disorder, you know, like when I was doing that, like hardcore thing, which is a term I rarely use in my work at this point, I I actually kind of stay away from diagnostic terms, partly because of this reason. 
you know, it, it kind of made me feel like, there was like a feeling of a little bit of like doom or like, you know, there's going to be a magic moment when I'm cured. There were all sorts of weird mental things that came along with that diagnosis that in some ways weren't always super helpful. And so I'm, I'm really conscious of how the way we think about this problem is really, um, is really critical to recovery and the way we think about this problem sometimes, you know, is, is a product of the language that we use around it and those kinds of things. So, Yeah. Even too, like if you're kind of on the cusp of having the clinical diagnosis, so maybe you only do it two times a week, but they're saying three times and then it's like shame can enter in again because you can be like, I'm not good enough at this. Yeah. So shame is just all over the place. Right. That's yet another reason why I stay away from diagnostics also is because, you know, I think that people don't realize, I mean, certainly, you know, one of the reasons I rarely, if ever, use the term eating disorder in quotes, um, in my work directly, right. It's because there are so many women, most, I mean, there's so many women who do not have a diagnosis who want support and want help. And I'm not even necessarily sure that these are people, these are people who are connected with the fact that they need help. They don't necessarily need a diagnosis to know that and to mm-hmm. seek the resources they need. And they may not necessarily feel super comfortable with the diagnosis or they're just not getting it from their professionals because of weight bias within the eating disorder treatment world. I mean, there's just all sorts of issues that come along with that. So I'm really conscious of sort of when I use the term and and when I don't. And yeah, it is really interesting. If if anyone's interested, non-diagnostic therapy is sort of an area of therapy that I've become really interested in, which is sort of this idea that instead of diagnosing mental illness and kind of putting people into boxes of like, you have X, like you have depression, you have anxiety, you have a, this disorder, mental disorder. It's like, you know, the reality of the situation is with mental health, it's much more complicated than boxes and it's much more gray for most people. So let's like kind of treat people like individuals and look at what they're dealing with, you know, without necessarily having to catalog them or categorize what they're dealing with in that way. Yeah. Although the one thing that we know diagnosis is really helpful for is helping people not be in denial, which is of course always how I preface. I mean, every time I talk about the, you know, the issues with diagnosis and, you know, non-diagnostic therapy, my one caveat that I always say is, and it's important. The one thing that we know diagnosis is really helpful for is it helps people feel convicted um, Mm -hmm. in their treatment and going to treatment and not, and not again, again, effectively being in denial about what's happening. So yeah, that's important too. I really think it does depend on the person though. Like the identity, sometimes when you realize, okay, I have binge eating, like you said, that diet, like then they can feel like, okay, actually I'm no longer in denial. Like other people have this and this is the steps to get better. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then for other people, they can not want to wear that label so then avoid any type of treatment or help at any cost because they don't want to kind of connect with that identity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting like right or the identity can become a frankenstein which it sure, certainly did for me at one point which was like any time I mean for me especially with the binge eating diagnosis for me the big problem with the binge eating diagnosis is like any time I perceived my food to be like quote unquote, over the line or quote unquote, like, oh no, that was a bin, right? Like I was very quick to, to judge my food as whether or not it was a binge and that in and of itself, it often became a judgmental right or wrong 
that I judged my food around. So now all of a sudden it was like, okay, yeah, like, you know, you can eat what you want. You can, you know, like you're not restricting it, but don't binge, you know, and it became almost, I started to apply, I call it the don't binge eat diet was one of the last diets that I struggled with. It was just this feeling of, you know, there's an amount of food that is not okay to eat. Sometimes that wasn't helpful for me either because I was always looking for like, I was like, I would use, again, things like willpower to try to not fall off the edge into binge eating, which did not work, first of all, but second of all, often propelled the behavior forward, you know, and I was, I was judging, I was I sort of, I fell into the trap of often always judging, like, is my food okay? Or am I binging? Dear God, you know, and it, again, it sort of, it became another like thing to not do with food or like there's an amount of food that's not okay. And that also is problematic. So I think, I think that is a trap that sometimes people with the ED diagnoses can, can easily fall into is, is what I call the quote, don't binge eat diet, which is another way of saying like, there's an amount of food that's okay to eat and an amount of food that's not okay to eat. And if you cross the line, you fail. Day one starts tomorrow. And this is all diet mentality. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm very, I think I'm very conscious of that as well. I like that. I've never really heard the no, no binge type because it's true. Like, because you still feel like there is this certain amount of food. And what I don't know if, if you found this in your personal experience, but like with the, the monthly cycles and menstruation and hormones, like there are certain times of the months that I eat way more and certain mm-hmm. times of the months I eat less. And it balances mm-hmm. out in the end. But if I was to be in that no binge, like I'm telling you, like, well, why did you just have so much food today? It's just because that's what my body wanted that day. Exactly. And it's hard because, you know, I think that most people, you know, every time I ask, every time they say somebody like, oh, I binge eat, right? I'm like, okay, well, how are you defining that? What does a binge mean to you? People will come up with like all sorts of different things. Like a binge means I quote unquote feel out of control. I'm like, okay, well, how do you define that? Like, what is that? But pretty much at the end of the day, it always comes down to them making a judgment about what's okay or not okay based on something somewhat arbitrary that they're coming up with in their own, by definition, eating disordered heads, right? And so, you know, of course, what ends up happening, one of the reasons that this is problematic, I mean, it's problematic in general, just like on the context of it, it just perpetuates diet mentality. But I could also argue, right, the second you've judged your food is not okay, interestingly enough, you are probably setting yourself up to continue to bit, right? It actually propels even binge eating forward, which is kind of like the grand irony. I mean, that was sort of one of the first big things that I wrote about in my career was this idea of like, the second I have decided that I am off the wagon, even off the wagon of the don't binge eat diet, the second I have decided that I have failed, now it's like I'm full on in diet mentality. I'm like, I might as well just like fail harder today. Diet, you know, day one starts tomorrow. I started doing all the same stuff that I used to do when I was just dieting traditionally. I was still having the same experiences of like, today is ruined. Might as well eat everything that's nailed down. I suck. Tomorrow I'm going to try not to bend. I was still doing all of those same behaviors even when theoretically all I was doing was trying not to binge, you know? And so it was just this sort of like ironic thing where trying not to binge actually ultimately ended up setting me up for a lot of those same kind of being good, being bad on the wagon, off the wagon kind of behaviors. And um, yeah, I think that that's missed a lot um, 
often when people talk about BED, right? It's like yeah, it is. The, the big pitfall that so many binge eaters fall into is diet mentality around not binging, um, which ironically propels the problem forward rather than heals it. When I was like, you know what, even if I eat 10 pints of ice cream, whatever, not a big deal, right? Like the second I was able to like really get there to that place and really just be comfortable with whatever my food was without boundaries or restrictions or judgments of what that meant or without like some sort of like upper limit of like, except when you go to that point, right? That was actually when I started to have peace and sanity around food. That was when my food actually started to quote unquote normalize. And again, it's a little strange. I basically quote unquote stopped binging when I let go of the don't binge eat diet. The don't binge eat diet actually was spurring on a lot of diet binge cycling for me, interestingly enough. Yeah, it's I, I like just don't binge diet. Well, because it's almost like when you have this like ceiling or this like cap and it's it, no matter what, it's like you're going to feel confined by it and that inner sabotager right. rebel is gonna at some point wanna say, Hey, like I right. need to bust out of here. <laughs> right, right. I would say it's like, you know, is is if you're on a wagon, right? If you're on some kind of wagon, even the don't binge eat wagon, if you're on a wagon, if you're trying to stick to some kind of confine, it is only a matter before that confine is broken, right? It's only a matter of time before you fall off that wagon. And the second you've decided you've fallen off the wagon, right? Like now you're experiencing the same feelings of shame, the same feelings of guilt, the same feelings of failure, potentially the same behavioral consequences of those kinds of feelings, which are not what we want in recovery, right? And so, you know, it's sort of the cycle continues. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's a biggie for, for anyone who struggles with BED, binge eating, anyone who identifies with any of those terms and who's in recovery, yeah, beware the don't binge eat diet. It's often the last leg of recovery for a lot of people who identify with that term is kind of getting over that hump of the don't binge eat diet and not having diet mentality around even the act of getting really full. Yeah, I definitely had that experience myself. And did you have certain emotions that you've been able to like kind of totally pinpoint as the main triggers for you in, in your recovery? My emotional struggles pretty much for most of my life have been more on like anxiety spectrum, like, like high arousal, negative, high arousal, positive, low arousal, negative, low arousal, positive. So what that means is like, there are people who are just like chill and calm and happy and like living on the beach. And those would be low arousal, right? Like calm, chill, relaxed, low arousal, positive, right? Like low arousal, positive feelings. Like, Ooh, don't we all want to live in that land? Low arousal negative would be like depression, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're prone to low arousal negative, it's like, okay, you know, or I may have a negative feeling. I'm like sad, but I'm low arousal, right? It's not like, <gasps> not hyper. It's like my heart rate's slow, but I'm like sad. And you know, those, those kinds of feelings, low arousal negative. And then we have high arousal positive, which would be like excitement and yeah, I'm so pumped, right? And high arousal negative. So the, you know, anxiety basically like, yeah, I'm scared. Oh my God. How do I, you know, I'm worrying. I'm freaking out. What am I going to do about X? So I typically am more of a high arousal person if you haven't noticed. Um, <laughs> and so when I'm feeling the negative spectrum, it's typically more on the anxiety spectrum most of the time. Right. And again, people can travel around the square, but I'm just typically speaking for me personally, my, uh, my negative emotions are almost always like high arousal, like anxiety kind of things. And that's just, you know, the way the cookie crumbled for me because of my life experience and God knows what else. 
But yeah, so those are typically my triggers. But I think everyone is just different in what their emotional triggers are. You know, people cite all sorts of different stuff, loneliness, sadness. I mean, it can be any number of things and it'll be different things for different people at different times in their life. And, you know, in many ways, I'm grateful for, I wrote a blog post a while ago. I'm grateful for emotional eating, for giving me like a little hint, like, oh, isn't that interesting? You're having a feeling. You want to go handle your feelings? <laughs> hey, hey, there. Um, but for the most part, you know, I don't worry, you know, at this point, I'm like worrying about emotional eating was only just contributing to the cycle, right? It was just like, uh, was like, I'd rather just deal with my emotions, just make a priority of handling my emotions, wherever my food ends up happening is where my food ends up happening. And what that was a much better strategy for me in the long term, although scared the shit out of me when I was dealing with diet mentality and terrified of weight gain, right? It was very hard to quote unquote, not worry about emotional eating and not freak out about emotional eating or even binge eating was absolutely the most challenging part of coming to recovery, right? And so sort of letting the food work itself out in quotes, as I let go of dieting, accepted my body and just really focused on just living my best emotional life. Most people don't want to hear that. Like most people don't want to hear Hey, just like love yourself and work on your emotional life and deal with your feelings and deal with the actual issue at hand, which is your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your, you know, people in your life, your emotional health, all of those things, and let the food just be what it is. Most people don't want to hear that. Most people struggling with diet mentality, like are losing their minds when you say that. Again, like it's, most of the real things that work are things that people with diet mentality don't want to hear. They're addicted to control. No, just get my food under control. Just get my body under control. That is really the core addiction here, which brings me to my next point, which is the triggers for the emotional eating and the binge eating. It's like the least of my problems. What was much more problematic in my recovery what was much more challenging in my recovery was dealing with the triggers around going back to dieting. Cause I was fully addicted to trying to control my size. Like I was not okay with just letting my body be what it was. I was not okay with just like taking time to see where my body ends up when I like deal with my feelings and blah, 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 you know, just like pursue healthy self-care and just see what happens. I was not okay with that. That was the hardest part of my recovery was just really letting go of my very, very core fundamental addiction to trying to get my food right, right now, trying to get my body right, right, right now. You know, that is so, you know, in my opinion, that's the hard part is dealing with that and dealing with the triggers that propel me into that desire to control my food and my weight at all times. The, the triggers that make me anxious, the anxiety and the feelings of like, it's not okay, that were keeping me from being able to actually just do the thing called relax around food. That's really, in my opinion, the issue. Like triggers around the emotional eating actually in reality were the least of my problems now in retrospect, as I see it in many, and in, and I could make the argument in some ways, focusing on that so heavily, like, Oh my God, don't eat, don't eat. You're, you're just sad. Don't eat. You're just sad. Don't eat. It's like, okay, yeah, you're sad. Go deal with that. Like go call a friend, do what you need to do. But like, if you eat a cupcake over it, that's the least of your problems, right? Like let that be what that is. Right. And if you are freaking out and stressing out about like the fact that you ate a cupcake when you were sad, that's a way bigger problem for you in the long term, right? Like that diet mentality is much bigger deal 
it's going to kick you in the ass way harder in the long term. That's my spiel. Totally. How did you start to even recognize that, hey, this is an issue? Like, did you have a rock bottom moment or was it like, let's just see that this isn't work? Like, this isn't working in my life. Like, what, yeah, what was the process like for you to, to really transform your relationship to food and dieting? So, um, so, you know, I dieted my whole life and diet binged my whole life. I yo-yoed my whole life since very, very, very young age, since pre-memory. I was put on a diet by my pediatrician when I was young. I always say that on interviews just so people know that I have literally no memories of not being on a diet and subsequently not, not being obsessed with food, right? Like I was just kind of always either obsessed with trying to become thinner, but also on the flip side, like obsessed with eating. Like I always wanted the food. Like if it were up to me, you know, like there would be no greater, if somebody could invent a superpower for me, it would be like, I want to be able to eat everything and have it have no consequences. That That would be the superpower that I would choose (laughs) because that was like my, I was simultaneously obsessed with not gaining weight, obsessed with losing weight. I was obsessed with controlling my but on the flip side of that, of course, I also wanted to eat everything that wasn't nailed down. And I was spent my entire life sitting on my hands, just trying not to eat. It was like these two core desires, my two loves, eating and not eating. And they were at conflict with each other all the time. <laughs> like, they go together, oh right? Like if you're yeah. obsessed with not eating, you're also going to be obsessed with eating. Because like, guess what? Biology? Like, I don't know. Like, you have to eat. Like, if you suppress it, you're going to binge. That's just how it works. So, yeah, so I was sort of doing this, you know, yo-yoing, diet binge cycling, classically defined, fully obsessed with food and also simultaneously fully obsessed with how I could control my food for most of my childhood into like preteen, teen years, all the way fast forward to college. And at some point I was just like, you know, I had gained, I had progressively gained weight throughout high school. Again, I was definitely on binge eating spectrum, definitely done a lot of weight suppression, metabolic stuff. By the time I got to college, I was, I was, you know, for whatever reason, like heavier and perceived more importantly, I perceived myself to be and I, you know, just too big, you know, and I, you know, like, I was just like, I just need to get this weight off. I was a little bit, I was um, bigger than most of my peer group, like most of my direct peer group. And I just really had this narrative in my head. Like the only thing keeping me from being the most popular girl in school is this, you know, X number of pounds. And so I was like, I, you know, you went through all of high school and you didn't get there. And like, now you're in college and you just, you got to do it. And I just got to a point of desperation, a point of desperation to be thin where I was like, I'm willing to try anything. Somebody introduced me to cocaine. And that was like the end of the story. Like I just got fully addicted to cocaine as a weight loss drug, Mm -hmm. as a, as a method of weight control. I lost a lot of weight very quickly. Um, and subsequently got kicked out of school. I mean, like hand somebody with an eating disorder, stimulant medications, and like they will quickly lose their minds. So yeah, ended up basically getting kicked out of school, ended up in rehab. And, you know, it was very obvious to everyone like, oh, okay, like you have an eating disorder. Like that's what's going on. Anyway, so, you know, but one of the great things about rehab again was that it just, I think, again, sort of like with diagnosis, what we were talking about earlier is it got me to take my recovery seriously. And it got me to realize like, okay, it's not, this is not just about you 
not being able to stick to a diet. Like this is something bigger than that. And this is something, this is like a mental health issue that we need to find that, you know, that I needed to find a solution to. And that for me, that was really what I got out of treatment was just getting to the point where I sort of really understood, oh, wow, this is a, this is a path that I need to walk. I definitely realized after rehab that it wasn't going to be a short walk. I did not realize that when I went in. As I learned more about health and resize and weed supplement theory, there were a lot of facts that were either actively withheld from me, which I don't think was the case, or just literally unknown and misunderstood by my clinicians themselves. Like most, it is still rare to find eating disorder therapists who are really highly educated in health at every size. Like the concept of like health access at every size has been around for a while, but the research really didn't come out in full force until the nineties. But the research is, I mean, it's so, I mean, people, there's so much suppression of that research in the medical establishment. I mean, cause the other, the other thing about eating disorder treatment that's so complex is that eating disorder treatment by definition is part of the Western medical establishment and the Western medical establishment right now is heavily politically invested in fat phobia and is heavily politically invested in making people be a quote, right weight. Our entire healthcare system revolves around what right weightness, right? Like that is our predominant measure of health in our current medical system. So if you think about it, like clinicians, right, again, no fault of their own, most ED clinicians, whether they be therapists, RDs, certainly RDs, you know, and all these, they're being trained within the Western medical establishment, which is politically aligned, heavily politically committed to the concept of right weakness. So you have what I would call a conflict of interest, right? Like you have people treating eating disorders who are being trained in institutions and establishments that are by definition fat phobic. There is no, I think there was recently a study that came out that the most fat phobic, the most weight discriminating industry that exists is medicine, is our healthcare system, right? I mean, like fat people go to the office and it's just like, they're just going to be treated super, super badly. It's like, you are fat, you're going to die. You need to lose weight right now. Fat person goes into an office with a knee injury or an ankle injury. The first thing is like, my knee hurts, lose weight. My ankle hurts, lose weight. I mean, that's all fat people here. You know, if you're a person of size, you're a plus size person, that's all you're here all day long, right? Like that is our entire, and that was not always the case. This is something that has become the case with the war on obesity. There are politics involved in this, right? Like this is not unbiased science, right? And so, you know, again, you, it's hard to separate clinical treatment. You know, right now we have a very clinical perspective on mental health. Um, That's how mental health is treated. Mental health issues are treated in the clinical model. And the clinical model comes out of the Western medical establishment, which is very, very, very politically committed to the concept of fat being bad and thin being good. True that. (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I, I definitely was like one of those people who sort of like went, you know, was in treatment. I was in treatment for years and I, you know, like, and I certainly made incredible strides. Like, you know, I wasn't, I was not doing drugs. I was not going on sort of these like active extreme diets or anything like that but I was still really suffering from a lot of diet mentality. I was really suffering and really struggling with a lot of there's a right body to have and a wrong body to have. 
And that bled into my relationship with food, not maybe in the extreme ways that it did before going to treatment, but it absolutely did bleed into my food. It bled into how I felt about my food choices. It bled into, you know, going to bed. Like, was I, did I do a good job today? Did I do a bad job today? It bled into shame around, you know, my body, my food. I mean, it just bled and it's, it was like the subtle bleeding into my food choices. And for me as a binge eater, that, that did mean like I did continue to binge for a long time. Like, you know, I always thought at the time I was like, I'm not restricting anymore. I'm just binging. I didn't even realize that I was still restricting, right? Because it wasn't even really being pointed out to me that restriction is a subtle thought process. It's not just about, are you on a diet? Are you doing Weight Watchers? Are you counting calories? It's a subtle thought process, right? And that subtle thought process was really screwing with my food and and contributing to continued binge eating. And so it was years. Yeah. Yeah, it was years. It was years into my recovery, you know, that I that I stopped even having like really violent binge eating behaviors. Like today, like I'll have days where I'm like, I'm gonna go like eat a whole pizza, you know, and it's fine. Like I'm cool with it. Like I don't use the word binge. Like I'm like, that's me owning my behaviors and doing what I want, and that no one can, can tell me what to do with my food. Excuse my language, you know. Like it's fine, you know, but those sort of really violent, aggressive binge eating episodes that were so clearly a result of just quote, fallen off the wagon. You know, I full on those kinds of episodes that are just so riddled with shame and so riddled with constant negative self-judgment. That's not my relationship with food anymore. And that didn't shift until I really understood that restriction is not just a physical behavior. It is an emotional attitude. I like that. That's like, cause I, I, you know, I had the same. I never thought about it that way. Cause you're still thinking about it. You're still kind of have the diet thoughts or something like the restriction and the no binge diet too, as well. So it's like all of that. Yeah. Uh, I love the way that you talk about it. It's just like, that's what you really say is just, you communicate it so well. And it's, uh, I know that you're impacting so many women and men's lives around the world because of the work you do. So just keep it up. And it's just, yeah, it's beautiful work. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you, Isabel Foxen Duke. You can connect with Isabel and her work through her website at isabelfoxenduke.com. That's her name, isabelfoxenduke.com. Now let's go over three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one. Avoid applying diet mentality to recovery. Diet mentality is a mindset that certain foods or quantities of foods are okay and not okay to eat. And as Isabel explains, this moralistic mentality of being good and not good can also creep in on your recovery as the don't binge eat diet. It was just this sort of like ironic thing where trying not to binge actually ultimately ended up setting me up for a lot of those same kind of being good, being bad on the wagon, off the wagon kind of behaviors. And, um, when I was like, you know what, even if I eat 10 pints of ice cream, whatever, not a big deal. Right. Like the second I was able to like really get there to that place and really just be comfortable with whatever my food was without boundaries or restrictions or judgments of what that meant, or without like some sort of like upper limit of like, except when you go to that point, right. That was actually when I started to have peace and sanity around food. That was when my food actually started to quote unquote normalize. 
Being comfortable around food without boundaries, restrictions, or judgments is the pathway to peace. And this is why you want to be aware of the don't binge eat diet because it is just diet mentality dressed up in the name of recovery, but still enforcing its boundaries, restrictions, and judgments. There is no failing in recovery and there is no recovery wagon to fall off of. Recovery happens one step at a time. And sometimes we step in poop and that's all right doesn't mean we are a bad person or destined to fail. We wipe it off and we keep going. So that is key takeaway number one, avoid applying diet mentality to recovery. Key takeaway number two, recognize the role of diet culture in treatment. Eating disorder treatment by definition is part of the Western medical establishment. And it's important to remember that politics are at play. With things like the, quote, war on obesity, which is committed to the concept of fat being unhealthy or bad and thin being healthy or good. Most clinicians, therapists, and registered dietitians are trained under this fat phobic mindset. Isabel shared the implications of this conflict of interest. There was recently a study that came out that the most fat phobic, the most weight discriminating industry that exists is medicine is our healthcare system, right? I mean, like fat people go to the office and it's just like, they're just going to be treated super, super badly. It's like, you are fat. You're going to die. You need to lose weight right now. Fat person goes into an office with a knee injury or an ankle injury. The first thing is like, my knee hurts, lose weight. My ankle hurts, lose weight. I mean, that's all fat people here. You know, if you're a person of size, if you're a plus size person, that's all you're here all day long, right? Like that is our entire, and that was not always the case. This is something that has become the case with the war on obesity. There are politics involved in this, right? Like this is not unbiased science. When seeking medical care for your eating disorder or any health concern, it's important to remember the role that diet culture and fat phobia may play in your treatment. If you're living in a larger body, you may be prescribed weight loss as a medical treatment, even when it is harmful and isn't relevant to what you're seeking care for. Thankfully, there are more and more doctors, therapists, and registered dietitians who are becoming aware of the science and research behind things like intuitive eating and health at every size. Seek out and connect with these types of providers when you can. If you don't have access to these types of professionals, make sure to empower yourself and advocate for yourself when you seek treatment and care from professionals influenced by diet culture. So that was key takeaway number two, recognize the role of diet culture in treatment. Finally, key takeaway number three, diagnosis isn't everything. Many people struggle with food and body issues without a formal eating disorder or mental health diagnosis. Sometimes this is due to a lack of access to care or access to the appropriate quality of care. Alternatively, maybe you have received a diagnosis, but just don't feel comfortable with it. A diagnosis is not required to get better, nor do you need a diagnosis to know that you could benefit from getting help and support non-diagnostic therapy is sort of an area of therapy that I've become really interested in, which is sort of this idea that instead of diagnosing mental illness and kind of putting people into boxes of like, you have X, like you have depression, you have anxiety, you have this disorder, mental disorder. It's like, you know, the reality of the situation is with mental health, it's much more complicated than boxes and it's much more gray for most people. So let's like kind of treat people like individuals and look at what they're dealing with, you know, without necessarily having to catalog them or categorize what they're dealing with in that way. Yeah. Although the one thing that we know diagnosis is really helpful for is helping people not be in denial. 
which is of course always how I preface. I mean, every time I talk about you know the issues with diagnosis and you know non-diagnostic therapy, my one caveat that I always say is, and it's imp- the one thing that we know diagnosis is really helpful for is it helps people feel convicted um, mm-hmm. in their treatment and going to treatment and not and not again again effectively being in denial about what's happening. Your food and body struggles are valid whether you have a diagnosis or not. If you prefer a more fluid approach and choose not to embrace a diagnosis, that is perfectly fine. If you feel validated and motivated in your recovery because of a diagnosis, that is also perfectly fine. Ultimately, this depends person to person, so embrace what works best for you. And remember, a diagnosis is not your identity. Diagnosis isn't everything. So these are three key takeaways from this conversation with Isabel Fox and Duke. Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion light the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this warrior.